So, we are here on the first day of the year, uh, together as a church. It is a glorious day. It's wet and cold and windy outside. Uh, more on that later. We're, we're, the plan is to do kind of this two-part series at the beginning of the year, which I've titled uh, United in Prayer and United in Vision. And so I've said this the last couple weeks. Uh, my goal is really to, to just begin a new year with, in which we've had a lot of changes, a new senior pastor, namely, uh, begin just seeking the Lord in prayer and seeking the Lord in vision. What is God's preferred future for us? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? So this, these are the things that we wanted to kind of discuss in these opening weeks of the year. If you are visiting with us, we are currently studying the Gospel of John, and so we will get back there in a couple weeks. In the third week of the year, we'll, we'll return to the Gospel of John, and I'm eager to do that. I hope you are as well, because it's been a, a fun study through the Gospel of John. And so we, we do look forward to doing that in a couple weeks. I do also want to say, that's in your bulletin, that we have our growth groups that are starting up again, took a little break through the Christmas uh, season, but uh, if you're not in a growth group, I really want to encourage you to think about joining a growth group. Uh, these groups are tremendous opportunities to really flesh out and live the vision of our church. Uh, again, to hunger for God's Word, to sacrificially care for one another, and to be desperate to reach the lost. Uh, me and Joel actually had a wonderful privilege I'm not making any recommendations here, but we had a wonderful privilege by the Clayson uh, uh, growth group to come into their home and to see their growth group, and they had a dinner with us and kind of a Christmas celebration. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to sit around and hear uh, these folks talk about how God is caring for them and they're caring for one another in the context of a growth group. And so January 18th is when we kind of kick them back up here at the church. We'll have child care available there on Wednesday nights. There's two that are available here on campus, uh, but there are other growth groups available as well. And so I encourage you, go to our website, rosedalebiblechurch.com. You'll see a link there, growth groups, as you scroll down, click on that. You can see the different options that are available. Uh, I really encourage you to be a part of one of those growth groups. It's just a tremendous opportunity uh, to care for one another and to be cared for from our church family. That being said, uh, let us move now to our time uh, in God's Word as we continue our worship. On this first day of the year, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, I'll have to do that myself, to Psalm 63. This psalm was adopted by the early church as its morning psalm, its morning psalm, no doubt because the early translators rendered the phrase, earnestly I seek you, which is what we will read in our version, they rendered it as early I will seek you, early I will seek you, and so it's called a morning psalm. Well, if this is in fact an early psalm, I suppose we might seek its wisdom on this very first day of the year. The church father Christostom said this psalm was, quote, appointed to be said every morning, to kindle in us a desire of God, to raise our souls and inflame them with a mighty fire of devotion, to make us overflow with goodness and love, and send us with such preparation to approach and appear before God. It's my hope that such would be our aim this morning, maybe even this year. 
Before we read the psalm, a word about the setting, that is, its context. The superscript of the psalm, which are those tiny words that are above the psalm, those words tell us that it was written by David while he was in the Judean wilderness. David spent a good deal of time in the wilderness. First Samuel 23, chapters 23 through 25, David fled from Saul into the wilderness. And in 2 Samuel 15, David fled from his son Absalom into the wilderness. These are two kind of noteworthy times that Scripture tells us that David was out in the wilderness. It's possible that David wrote this psalm during either time, but I do believe it's most likely that he wrote it while fleeing from his son Absalom. The reason I believe this is based on verse 11, where he refers to himself as a king. Scripture tells us that the road to Jericho, by which David fled Jerusalem, led through the northern part of the desert of Judah. 2 Samuel 15, 28 says that David waited at the fords of the wilderness. David's story at this time is one of hardship. David fled the city in haste. We read that both the king and his followers were, quote, hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. 2 Samuel 17, 29. However, we are given a clue on how David will fare during this time. How is he going to do? Well, 2 Samuel 15, David parts with the ark of God. He lets the ark of the covenant, the ark of God go while he's in the wilderness. And he says this to the priest, Zadok. Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he, that is God, will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, if God says, I have no pleasure in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. It's a powerful testimony. To part ways with the visible symbol of God's power and presence is no small thing. And it argues for no common faith. It's to the declarations of such a man that we now turn, and so I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Excuse me. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars 
will be stopped. May God bless the reading of His Word, and may its truth penetrate our hearts this morning. You may be seated. This morning in this passage, we're going to see the following. We're going to see the desert declarations of, De- of David reveal three prayer requests for the soul. Desert declarations of David reveal three prayer requests for the soul. The first picture we are given is of an exhausted wanderer. David places us in the desert where the environment has sapped us of strength. There's no better picture of thirst or fatigue like that of a person out in the wilderness. And it's from this picture that David gives us his first desert declaration. My soul thirsts for you, he says. It's from this declaration that we draw our first prayer request. I put it this way. You and I must pray for a craving soul. David moves from truth to trope, from experience to expression. He turns his wilderness experience into an expression of seeking and thirsting for and longing after and craving God. As David's lips were chapped, his skin burned, his eyes dried out, his feet blistered, his head pounding, and his belly aching, so was his soul. These are the physical effects of dehydration, but there are deeper and more lasting effects of spiritual dehydration. Maybe you've experienced spiritual dehydration. Have you lived through a wilderness wandering? Maybe you find yourself in one this morning, this year. It's to our shame that you and I too often traverse in a dry and weary land. You know the symptoms. We lack an appetite for God's Word. We are more interested in ourselves than others. We are unmoved by the eternal state of others. We've all been there. In a word, we don't hunger for God's Word. We don't sacrificially care for one another, and we're not desperate to reach the lost. How might we turn around our wilderness wanderings, our spiritual dehydration, Well, how was David able to turn his wilderness experience into an expression of craving? Body and soul after God. Look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David knew something about his God. David can think back upon the character of his God. He can remember that his God is holy that his God is powerful, that his God is glorious. Recall the words of Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The words of David. As David reflects on the character and nature of God, he gives us the reasons why or a reason why you and I must pray for a craving soul. And the reason is found in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. God is not only 
entirely other in his demonstration of power and glory, which David sees in the sanctuary, but he is entirely other in his demonstration of love. Why must we pray that our souls crave for God? Because God's love is better than life. To drink from the oasis of God's love is to find fulfillment for the soul. And there's only one fitting response. Chapter 3 again, my lips will praise you, David says. When I remember you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Verse 4, I skipped that one. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. When the realities of God take hold of the heart, our lips and limbs cannot help but bear witness to the things that, of which the heart is full. A soul that rightly craves God rightly expresses that craving. Our praise is not hidden or silent, but public. Our speaking and singing and signaling are a statement about our soul. The soul that craves God cannot see the purpose of life in any other way than that soul being filled with the thought of God should be, quote, a living echo of God and his life a continuous prayer, a testifying to God by singing his praise, which is the example of David. Church, in 2023, we must pray for a craving soul. We find a second desert declaration in verse 5. My soul will be satisfied. This declaration gives way to our second prayer request. You and I must pray for a content soul. A content soul. David shifts the metaphor from a desert to a banquet. In the first, he expresses craving, and in the second, contentment. To be satisfied with fat and rich foods is idiomatic for the, the joy, the greatness, and the bounty of God. David is satiated with these rich foods. The thought of God has so filled his soul that he can declare, I am satisfied. We understand that to be content is to be satisfied, it's to be fulfilled. One of the Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, defined Christian contentment this way, and this is the best definition I've ever read. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. What Burroughs is saying is that contentment is a mindset that accepts and delights in God's plan for our lives. And we see such a response in David. Chapter 5 again, or verse 5 again. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David's desire for God has so filled his soul that even night would not deter him from remembering and meditating on the things of God. My dad used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. Well, the Apostle Paul kind of blesses that in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, So then let us not sleep as others do, 
but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Whether in reality or metaphor, we're typically not our best at night. David's contentment, however, burns through the night. And what is the reason for such contentment? Verse 7 gives us the reason. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David finds protection in the Lord. Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. And the Lord is on my side as my helper. David's contentment lies in the Lord whose help and support he seeks. Therefore, he draws close to his God. He is covered in the shadow of his wings. We shouldn't overlook how the actions of remembering and meditating on God have given way to David's declaration that God is our helper. Sometimes we hear this word meditate. We think it's an unchristian word. The fact that meditation is a part of such religions as Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and is a part of a New Age movement and promoted as a psychotherapy in our day has led many of us to be uncomfortable with the subject and even suspicious of those who might engage in meditation. Yet, here we have David meditating on God's Word. Of course, the kind of meditation encouraged in the Bible differs greatly from other kinds of meditation. There's a common thread in unchristian meditation. It would be the desire to empty the mind. For example, transcendental meditation involves, quote, no attempt to sustain any particular condition at all. If non-Christian meditation is to empty the mind... Well, then Christian meditation is to fill the mind. If non-Christian meditation is a passive activity, Christian meditation is an active activity. Furthermore, Christians don't attempt to visualize our own reality. We meditate on what is true. The Apostle Paul says it best, Philippians 4.8. You're probably familiar with the verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about these things. There's your meditation. I love what Don Whitney says about meditation. He says, quote, meditation is letting the Bible brew in the brain. That's excellent. Letting the Bible brew in the brain. He goes on. Thus we might say that as the tea colors the water, meditation likewise colors our thinking. When we meditate on Scripture, namely on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent, on anything worthy of praise, when we meditate on those things, it colors our thinking about God, about God's ways and His world and about ourselves. And we see the result of such activity in the life of David. As a result of meditating, remembering, David can declare, you have been my help. 
Let's not miss the holistic nature, holistic nature of David's walk with the Lord. David's worship is not confined to the sanctuary, verse 2. It's not confined there. David has taken that worship and walked out into the world to praise his God. His craving and his contentment have creeped into every sphere of his daily life. Whether wandering or watching or waiting, David is worshiping. One can only imagine the possibilities of a man, of a woman, of a church with such desire for God. We don't have to imagine such things, and we have examples from history. I was reminded of an example that John John Piper gives. He talks of a man named Heinrich Bitzer. It's a pretty German name. Heinrich Bitzer Bitzer wrote an influential book of daily scripture readings in Hebrew and Greek called Light on the Path, No Easy Task. Bitzer wrote the book to help pastors preserve and improve their ability to interpret the Bible from the original languages. What's interesting about Bitzer is that he wasn't an accomplished theologian. He wasn't even a pastor. Bitzer was a banker. We often mention the faithfulness of George Mueller, who is famous for trusting God with his orphanages. What we sometimes miss is how his dependence on God was rooted in an insatiable desire for God. At 24 years old, he wrote this in his journal, I now studied much, about 12 hours a day, chiefly Hebrew and committing portions of the Hebrew Old Testament to memory. And this I did with prayer, often falling on my knees, I looked up to the Lord even whilst turning over the leaves of my Hebrew dictionary. These are not trained men. These are average people. As we pray for a content soul, we must not lose sight of David's situation. David's in the wilderness. Yes, David had beheld the power and glory of the Lord. Yes, David had received help from the Lord, but in this psalm, David finds himself in a valley. To pray for contentment is not to pray for our situation to change, although we can pray for that. To pray for contentment is to pray that our situation would change us. You remember Job, I know he's uh, often the example we go to, but you remember him and on a single day maybe even within hours, Job, all of children, Job's children died and all of his possession, possessions were taken. In a single day, everything was taken from him. The people he loved, his business, everything he had was gone. I think Job's words in response to that are probably the greatest single act of worship ever recorded on the pages of Scripture. I can't think of a more worshipful thing to say in the midst of of the greatest possible trial that one could go through. And so in this greatest and most profound act of worship, Job declares, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a prayer for contentment. 
I quoted the Puritan Jeremy Burroughs earlier. Listen to his insight on contentment. In active obedience, we worship God by doing what pleases God. That's easy for us to understand. We obey, we follow the commands. But by passive obedience, he writes, we worship God by being pleased with what God does. Now that's a real challenge. That's the, the, the words of Job. That when my family is gone and all my possessions are gone, I can declare, blessed be the name of the Lord. With such things in mind, we might pray something like this. Oh God, help us to be obedient this day. May we be holy as you are holy, not mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And oh God, may you so move in our souls that no matter what you providentially choose to bring into our lives, we will delight in it and see it as a part of your glorious plan for us and for the world. May we pray such a prayer. Now, David has taught us two things, to pray for a craving soul and a content soul. Well, finally, David teaches us to pray for a clinging soul, a clinging soul. And he does that in verse 8. He says, my soul clings to you. There are many places in the Bible that God invites his people to hold fast to him. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20 you shall fear the Lord, you shall serve Him and hold fast or cling to Him, and by His name you shall swear. You could write down in Deuteronomy 11, verses 22 and 23, another such passage. Matthew 19, 14, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. We're given this picture of children coming to God. Don't hinder them. Let them come. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We hear his voice, and we, we, we seek after him. We know it's right to follow him, to cling to him, to stay near him. Isn't that what Alice sang this morning? James 4.8 just says it outright, draw near to God. Of course, the backside of that verse says, and He will draw near to you. The Bible is clear both through mandate and metaphor that God's people are to cling to Him. This declaration from David, my soul clings to you, is David's response to God's invitation. And it's this declaration that becomes the prayer, help my soul cling to you to thee. The King James Version translates this verse, my soul followeth hard after thee. The Net Bible, which is a more modern translation, translates this as, my soul pursues you. That we must pray for such reminds us that clinging to God is not natural. I wish it were, but it's not. And you know this all too well. We don't become children of God and then always find ourselves drifting ever so easily toward His arms. Just isn't that way. Quite the opposite. All too often we can relate to Paul who said, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. 
And for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. The reason for this struggle is that you and I are in what I call, like to call a mixed condition. Our heart has been transformed, as we discovered some weeks ago from John 3. We have been born again. We're a new creation. Yet, that new creation is a mixed creation. It's a mixed one. While the heart and the mind are new and are being renewed day by day, our flesh is old. And it's interested in pursuing what the Bible calls passions, which is to say worldly passions. This means we must be diligent to follow hard after God. We must command the soul and our being to cling to God, which is our prayer. Paul makes a a striking admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. It's a, it's a pursuit of God. It's a fight to cling to Him. It's one thing to declare, my soul clings to you. It's another to pray for a clinging soul. And yet it's required that we relentlessly pursue Him. That we throw ourselves upon Christ. And when we do, what will we find? Look at verse 8 again. Your right hand upholds me. God is there. He is there to catch us. Maybe you've memorized Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Singing that song this morning, is overwhelming. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. It's powerful words. These are the most powerful realities ever. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. As David closes this psalm, we are given the reason, one final reason, why we ought to cling to God. We've already discovered 
We pray for a craving soul because God's love is better than life. We pray for a content soul because God is our helper. And now we discover that we pray for a clinging soul because God will bring justice. Verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. David might be in the wilderness. You and I might find ourselves in the desert. But we are not without hope. For whatever the reasons you find yourselves wanting, God is able to supply every need. For all the experiences that David had, for all the hits he took, David was hopeful. And he was hopeful because he knew his God would bring justice. Although things might be upside down right now, God will turn them around. And so David can declare, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. They shall glory in him, is what that means. They shall boast in him. Here's a lesson for us. David didn't need earthly proof. He didn't need earthly tokens, earthly blessings to be hopeful. Biblical hope reaches over our current situation and grabs hold of God's future vindication. The highest example of this is our Savior. 1 Peter 2, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That's a profound sense of looking over your current situation and trusting and looking forward to God's future vindication, which is what Jesus did in that moment. This psalm, Psalm 63, gives us a a compelling picture. The picture is that of a man in the wilderness. He is in a dry and weary land. There's no water. He has enemies. There are even some who have made false accusations against him, some who seek to destroy his life. And it's from such a place that this man can declare, my soul thirsts for you. I am satisfied in you. My soul clings to to you, God. It's my hope that these declarations might become our prayer requests in this new year. That you and I might pray for a soul that craves for God. That we might pray for a soul that is content in God. And that we might together pray for a soul that clings to God. Now, I want to say David's situation is not unlike ours. True, we're not in the physical wilderness. We're not without resources and our life is probably not under threat. But our world can easily become a similar kind of wilderness. What the wilderness experience does is tempt us to think that God is not good. I'm sure you've been there. It tempts us to think that God doesn't care for us. That He is not worth our pursuit. 
What the wilderness experience does is distract us from the things of God. It's easy to declare that God's love is better than life when we're standing in the sanctuary beholding His power and glory. It's simple to say we are satisfied when when a table has been set before us. Therefore, we have this challenge before us. These prayers will be offered while in the wilderness, which is where David offered them. We might like, not like it, but the reality is these are wilderness prayers. And it's with this point that I want to close our time. Hopefully you'll enjoy this moment. I want to do an illustration that is going to involve all of you, all of us this morning. I have no idea what it's like outside, but in a moment, I'm going to ask us all to move outside. I'm going to ask you to walk out these doors and through the foyer out into the grassy area out here next to Rosedale Highway. We're going to close with an illustration. There's going to be some chairs there for those who need to sit. If you need to sit, that's okay. If you're wearing, as Rusty said, stilettos and the grass will not hold, the, hold it up, uh, you can stand on the concrete area next to the grass. If you have health issues or disability that hinders you from standing in the grass, that's fine. You can remain on the concrete area under the awning or the overhang there. We're not going to be out there long, but here's the plan. We're going to stand together as a church. And I'm going to ask you to lay a hand on someone next to you. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I'm going to pray that our souls would crave for God, that we would be content in God, and that each of us, as a church, we would cling to God. And, maybe it's humorous, we're going to pray in our own little wilderness. Because here's the truth, it's easy to pray these things here. But we're only here for an hour a week. Therefore, we'll need to pray these things out there. We're going to need to pray for these things when the trucks drowned out the noise. When we're struggling to hear. When we are cold. When it's wet. When there's a mud puddle we just walked through. When our backs ache when the baby won't stop crying, when the job doesn't come through, when home becomes a hospital, this is where we'll have to pray these prayers. And so on this first day of the year, let us stand together and pray. Let us go.